Volume One, Chapter Four of Gwen Wynne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Gwen Wynne, A Romance of the Why, by Maine Reed. Chapter Four, On the River. The fair rower, vigorously bending to the oars, soon brings through the byway and out into the main channel of the river. Once in midstream, she suspends her stroke, permitting the boat to drift down with the current, which, for a mile before Lingoran, flows gently through meadowland, but a few feet above its own level, and flush with it in times of flood. On this particular day there is none such, no rain having fallen for a week, and the wise water is pure and clear, smooth, too, as the surface of a mirror, only where, now and then, a light zephyr, playing upon it, stirs up the tiniest of ripples. A swallow dips its scimitar wings, or a salmon in bolder dash causes a pearl, with circling eddies, whose wavelets extend wider and wider as they subside. So, with the trace of their boat's keel, the furrow made by it instantly closing up, and the current resuming its tranquillity, while their reflected forms, too bright to be spoken of as shadows, now fall on one side, now on the other, as the capricious curving of the river makes necessary a change of course. Never went boat down the Wye carrying freight more fair. Both girls are beautiful, though of opposite types, and a different degree. While the one, Gwendolyn Wynne, no water nymph or naiad could compare, her warm beauty in its real embodiment far excelling any conception of fancy or flight of the most romantic imagination. She is not thinking of herself now, nor, indeed, does she much at any time, least of all in this wise. She is anything but vain. Instead, like Vivian Rycroft, rather underrates herself, and possibly more than ever this morning, for it is with him her thoughts are occupied, surmising whether his may be with her, but not in the most sanguine hope. Such a man must have looked upon many a form fair as hers, one smiles of many a woman beautiful as she. How can she expect him to have resisted, or that his heart is still whole? While thus conjecturing, she sits half-turned on the thwart, with oars out of the water, her eyes directed down the river, as though in search of something there. And they are, that something a white helmet hat. She sees it not, and as the last thought has caused her some pain, she lets down the oars with a plunge, and recommences pulling. Now, and as in spite, at each dip the blades, breaking her own bright image. During all this while, Ellen Lees is otherwise occupied, her attention partly taken up with the steering, but as much given to the shores on each side, to the green pasture-land, of which, at intervals, she has a view, with the white-faced Herefords straying over it, or standing grouped in the shade of some spreading trees, forming pastoral pictures worthy of the pencil of a moorland or cup. In clumps, or apart, tower up old poplars, through whose leaves, yet but half unfolded, can be seen the rounded burrs of the mistletoe, looking like nests of rooks. Here and there, one overhangs the river's bank, shadowing still deep pools, where the ravenous pike lies in ambush for salmon pink and such small fry while on a bare branch above may be observed another of their persecutors, the kingfisher, 
its brilliant azure plumage in strong contrast with everything on the earth around, and like a little bit of sky fallen from above. At intervals it is seen darting from side to side, or in longer flight, following the bend of the stream, and causing scamper among the minnows, itself startled and scared by the intrusion of the boat upon its normally peaceful domain. Miss Lees, who is somewhat of a naturalist, and has been out with the district field club on more than one ladies' day, makes note of all these things. As the Gwendolyn glides on, she observes beds of the water ranunculus, whose snow-white corollas, bending to the current, are oft rudely dragged beneath, while on the banks above, their cousins of golden sheen, mingling with petals of yellow and purple loosestrife, for both grow here, with anemones and pale lemon-colored daffodils, are but kissed, and gently fanned, by the balmy breath of spring. Easily guiding the craft down the slow-flowing stream, she has a fine opportunity of observing nature in its unrestrained action, and takes advantage of it. She looks with delighted eye at the freshly opened flowers, and listens with charmed ear to the warbling of the birds, a chorus on the why, sweet and varied as anywhere on earth. From many a deep-lying dell in the adjacent hills, she can hear the song of the thrush, as if endeavouring to outdo, and cause one to forget, the matchless strain of its nocturnal rival, the nightingale, or making music for its own mate, now on the nest, and occupied with the cares of incubation. She hears, too, the bold whistling carol of the blackbird, the trill of the lark soaring aloft, the soft, sonorous note of the cuckoo, blending with the harsh scream of the jay, and the laughing cackle of the green woodpecker, the last loud beyond all proportion to the size of the bird, and bearing close resemblance to the cry of an eagle. Strange coincidence, besides, in the woodpecker being commonly called Ecol, a name on the Y, pronounced with striking similarity to that of the royal bird. Pondering upon this very theme, Ellen has taken no note of how her companion is employing herself, nor is Miss Wynne thinking of either flowers or birds, only when a large one of the latter, a kite, shooting out from the summit of a wooded hill, strays a while soaring overhead, does she give thought to what so interests the other. A pretty sight, observes Ellen, as they sit looking up at the sharp, slender wings and long, bifurcated tail, cut clear as a cameo against the cloudless sky. Isn't it a beautiful creature? Beautiful, but bad, rejoins Gwen, like many other animated things. Too like, and too many of them. I suppose it's on the lookout for some innocent victim, and will soon be swooping down at it. Ah, me! It's a wicked world now, with all its sweetness. One creature preying upon another, the strong seeking to devour the weak, these ever needing protection. Is it any wonder we poor women, weakest of all, should wish to— she stays her interrogatory, and sits in silence, abstractedly toying with the handles of the oars which she is balancing above water. "'Wish to do what?' asked the other. "'Get married,' answers the heiress of Longoran, elevating her arms and letting the blades fall with a plash, as if to drown a speech so bold. Withal, watching its effect upon her companion, as she repeats the question in a changed form, "'Is it strange, Ellen?' I suppose not, Ellen timidly replies, 
blushingly, too, for she knows how nearly the subject concerns herself, and half believes the interrogatory aimed at her. Not at all strange, she adds more affirmatively. Indeed, very natural, I should say, that is, for women who are poor and weak, to really need a protector. But you, Gwen, who are neither one nor the other, but instead rich and strong, have no such need. I'm not so sure of that, with all my riches and strength, for I am a strong creature, as you see, can row this boat almost as ably as a man. She gives a vigorous pull or two, as proof, then continuing. Yes, and I think I've got great courage, too. Yet, would you believe it, Nellie, notwithstanding all, sometimes I have a strange fear upon me. Fear of what? I can't tell. That's the strangest part of it, for I know of no actual danger. Some sort of vague apprehension that now and then oppresses me, lies on my heart, making it heavy as lead, sad and dark as the shadow of that wicked bird upon the water. Ugh! she exclaims, taking her eyes off it, as if the sight, suggestive of evil, had brought on one of the fear spells she is speaking of. If it were a magpie, observes Ellen laughingly, you might view it with suspicion. Most people do, even some who deny being superstitious. But a kite! I never heard of that being ominous of evil. No more its shadow, which as you see it there is but a small speck compared to the wide bright surface around. If your future sorrow be only in like proportion to your joys, they won't signify much. See, both the bird and its shadow are passing away, as will your troubles, if you ever have any. Passing, perhaps, soon to return. Ha! Look there, as I've said. This, as the kite swoops down upon a wood-quest, and strikes at it with outstretched talons, missing it, nevertheless. For the strong-winged pigeon, forewarned by the other's shadow, has made a quick double in its flight, and so shun the deadly clutch. Still, it is not yet safe. Its tree-covert is far off on the wooded slope, and the tyrant continues the chase. But the hawk has its enemy, too, in the gamekeeper with his gun. Suddenly it is seen to suspend the stroke of its wings, and go whirling downward, while a shot rings out on the air, and the cushat, unharmed, flies on for the hill. "'Good!' exclaims Gwen, resting the oars across her knees, and clapping her hands in an ecstasy of delight. "'The innocent has escaped!' "'And for that you ought to be assured, as well as gratified,' puts in the companion, "'taking it as a symbol of yourself, and those imaginary dangers you've been dreaming about.' "'True,' assents Miss Wynne, musingly. "'But, as you see, the bird found a protector, just by chance, and in the nick of time.' "'So will you, without any chance, and at such time as may please you.' "'Oh!' exclaimed Gwen, as if endowed with fresh courage. I don't want one, not I. I'm strong to stand alone. Another tug at the oars to show it. No, she continues, speaking between the plunges. I want no protector, at least not yet, nor for a long while. But there's one wants you, says the companion, accompanying her words with an interrogative glance. As soon, soon as he can have you, Indeed, I suppose you mean Master George Shenstone. Have I hit the nail upon the head? You have? 
Well, what of him? Only that everybody observes his attentions to you. Everybody is a very busy body. Being so observant, I wonder if this everybody has also observed how I receive them. Indeed, yes. How then? With favor. Tis said you think highly of him. And so I do. There are worse men in the world than George Shenstone, possibly few better, and many a good woman would, and might, be glad to become his wife. For all, I know one of a very indifferent sort who wouldn't. That's Gwen Wynne. But he's very good-looking, Ellen urges. The handsomest gentleman in the neighborhood. Everybody says so. There your everybody would be wrong again, if they thought as they say. But they don't. I know one who thinks somebody else much handsomer than he. Who? asked Miss Lees, looking puzzled, for she had never heard of Gwendolen having a preference, save that spoken of. The Reverend William Musgrave, replies Gwen, in turn bending inquisitive eyes on her companion, to whose cheeks the answer has brought a flush of color, with a spasm of pain at the heart. Is it possible her rich relative, the heiress of Langorn Court, can have set her eyes upon the poor curate of Langoran Church, where her own thoughts have been secretly straying? With an effort to conceal them now, as the pain caused her, she rejoins interrogatively, but in faltering tone, "'You think Mr. Musgrave handsomer than Mr. Shenstone?' "'Indeed I don't. Who says I do?' "'Oh, I thought,' stammers out the other, relieved, too pleased just then to stand up for the superiority of the curate's personal appearance. I thought you meant it that way. But I didn't. All I said was that somebody thinks so. And that isn't I. Shall I tell you who it is? Ellen's heart is quiet again. She does not need to be told, already divining who it is, herself. You may as well let me, pursues Gwen, in a bantering way. Do you suppose, Miss Lees, I haven't penetrated your secret long ago? Why, I knew it last Christmas, when you were assisting his demure reverence to decorate the church. Who could fail to observe that pretty hand-play, when you two were twining the ivy round the altar-rail? And the holly, you were both so careless in handling. I wonder it didn't prick your fingers to the bone. Why, Nell, t'was as plain to me as if I'd been at it myself. Besides, I'd seen the same thing scores of times. So has everybody in the parish. Ha! You see, I'm not the only one with whose name this everybody has been busy, the difference being that about me they've been mistaken, while concerning yourself they haven't, instead speaking pretty near the truth. Come now, confess. Am I not right? Don't have any fear. You can trust me. She does confess, though not in words. Her silence is equally eloquent, drooping eyelids and blushing cheeks, making that eloquence emphatic. She loves Mr. Musgrave. Enough, says Gwendolen, taking it in this sense. And since you've been candid with me, I'll repay you in the same coin. But mind you, it mustn't go further. Oh, certainly not, assents the other, and in her restored confidence about the curate, willing to promise anything in the world. As I've said, proceeds Miss Wynne, there are worse men in the world than George Shenstone, and but few better, certainly none behind hounds, and I'm told he's the crack shot of the county, and the best billiard player of his club. All accomplishments that have weight with us women, some of us. More still, he's deemed good-looking, and is, as you say, known to be of good family and fortune. 
for all, he lacks one thing that's wanted by. She stays her speech till dipping the oars, their splash simultaneous with, and half drowning, the words, Gwen Wynne. What is it? asked Ellen, referring to the deficiency thus hinted at. On my word, I can't tell. For the life of me I cannot. It's something undefinable, which one feels without seeing or being able to explain, just as ether or electricity. Possibly it is the last. At all events, it's the thing that makes us women fall in love, as no doubt you found when your fingers were, were, well, so nearly being pricked by that holly. <laughs> With a merry peal she once more sets to rowing, and for a time no speech passes between them, the only sounds heard being the songs of the birds, in sweet symphony with the rush of the water along the boat's sides, and the rumbling of the oars in their rowlocks. But for a brief interval there is silence between them, Miss Wynne again breaking it by a startled exclamation. See? Where? Where? Up yonder. We've been talking of kites and magpies. Behold, two birds of worse augury than either. They are passing the mouth of a little influent stream, up which at some distance are seen two men, one of them seated in a small boat, the other standing on the bank, talking down to him. He in the boat is a stout, thick-set fellow, in velveteens and coarse fur cap, the one above a spare, thin man, habited in a suit of black, of clerical, or rather sacerdotal, cut. Though both are partially screened by the foliage, the little stream running between wooded banks, Miss Wynne has recognized them. So, too, does the companion, who rejoins, as if speaking to herself. One's the French priest, who has a chapel up the river, on the opposite side. The other's that fellow who said to be such an incorrigible poacher. Priest and poacher it is, an oddly assorted pair, though in a sense not so ill-matched, either. I wonder what they're about up there, with their heads so close together. They appeared as if not wishing we should see them. Didn't strike you so, Nelly? The men are now out of sight, the boat having passed the rivulet's mouth. Indeed, yes, answered Miss Lees. The priest, at all events, he drew back among the bushes on seeing us. I'm sure his reverence is welcome. I've no desire to set eyes on him, quite the contrary. I often meet him on the roads. I, too, and off them. He seems to be about everywhere, skulking and prying into people's affairs, I noticed him, the last day of our hunting, among the rabble, on foot, of course. He was close to my horse, and kept watching me out of his owlish eyes, all the time. So impertinently I could have laid the whip on his shoulders. There's something repulsive about the man. I can't bear the sight of him. He's said to be a great friend, and very intimate associate of your worthy cousin, Mr. Don't name him, Nell. I'd rather not think, much less talk of him. Almost the last words my father ever spoke, never let Lewin Murdoch cross the threshold of Angoran. No doubt he had his reasons. My word, this day with all its sunny brightness seems to abound in dark omens. Birds of prey, priests, and poachers. It's enough to bring on one of my fear fits. I now rather regret leaving Joseph behind. Well, we must make haste and get home again. Shall I turn the boat back? asked the steerer. No, not just yet. I don't wish to repass those two uncanny creatures. Better leave them for a while, so that on returning we mayn't see them, to disturb the priest's equanimity, more like his conscience. 
The reason is not exactly as assigned, but Miss Lees, accepting it without suspicion, holds the tiller cords so as to keep the course on downstream. End of chapter 4